everyone, and welcome to This Mom Loves. I'm Kate Wynn. I'm a wife, a mom. My daughters, Olivia and Eva, are 13 and almost 11. I'm a kindergarten teacher. I'm a blogger at thismomloves.ca, as well as a freelance writer, occasionally a TV guest talking about education, and a podcaster too. And you are listening to episode 23 of the show. Today in my favorite things, I'm going to be talking about an incredible suspense novel that I just finished. In the lifestyle segment, I'll be talking a bit about growth mindset, what it is and why you want your kids to have it and why you want to have it too. And then my very special guest today is Anne Douglas. She's a longtime parenting author here to talk about her new book, Happy Parents, Happy Kids. And I'm assuming if you're listening to a, a show called This Mom Loves, it's possible that you are a parent and I think it's very likely that you want to be happy. So you're going to want to stick around to, uh, to hear Anne talk all about that new book. Kicking things off with one of my favorite things, I just finished a novel called The Silent Patient by Alex McKelides. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly, and it's so good. So it's about a woman named Alicia. One evening, her husband comes home from work. She shoots him five times and kills him. So she's tried, but she has stopped talking since the incident. So she ends up being put in a, a secure forensic unit. And there's a criminal psychotherapist who ends up working with her. And there's things going on in his life that we find out about. And then all of the work that he's doing to try to get Leisha to open up and find out what happened um, with her whole big incident. And it's one of those books where it's really, really good. And you're reading it and you're reading it. And you're thinking, but how is this going to end? And honestly, I was expecting that the ending would have to be disappointing compared to the rest of the book. I thought it's going to be some sort of cop out or something, you know, that's, that's not going to be satisfying. But the end actually surprised me and I was really impressed by it. So if you are into that type of suspense novel, The Silent Patient is for you. Next up in the lifestyle segment, let's talk a little bit about growth mindset. So this has been a, a buzzword or a buzz expression in education for, for several years now. In fact, a few years ago, um, our principal gave us a copy of Carol Dweck's book, Mindset, as a Christmas gift. He gave that to staff members. I'm not sure it was top on their, on their wish list for Christmas, but it's actually a really excellent book. So growth mindset, if you have one. You believe that with work, practice, perseverance, you can improve. That's basically it. So whether it's your academic performance or any other skill, you believe that with effort, with, with time, you can improve that skill. The opposite is a fixed mindset. So that's if you believe that our intelligence and our talents are predisposed, you're born with it or not, there's nothing you can do about it. So thanks to the work of Carol Dweck from Stanford, she has shown in her studies that not only is growth mindset accurate, that in almost all cases, improvement can be made. It doesn't mean, you know, you're going to make it to the NBA as a basketball player, but you can improve your basketball skills. So the growth mindset is accurate, but those who hold those beliefs actually improve more than those who have a fixed mindset. So that's why it's really essential for our kids and, and how it can be good for us too. So some things you can do at home. So number one, pay attention and verbally praise your kids for skills that don't sound predetermined, like hard work, persistence, rising to a challenge, learning from a mistake, as opposed to you're so smart or you're so brilliant or you're so talented at that as if that has nothing to do with them and it was just predisposed. Um, I love when kids tell me, oh, I had to try this 10 times to get it right, or I made a mistake, but then I fixed it. I make a big deal in the classroom when somebody self-corrects a mistake or when they get something wrong and somebody's able to help them learn from it. We make a huge deal about how you learn from mistakes. There are all sorts of neat printouts. If you just look on Pinterest or even just Google for things 
Instead of this, say this. So instead of I give up, say I'll use a different strategy. Or instead of this is too hard, this may take some time. Instead of I can't do this, I'm going to train my brain. That sort of thing, you know, and, and get kids using those phrases instead to help them promote that growth mindset. Number two, be a growth mindset role model yourself. So think about how often you say things like, I can't cook. I could never balance my bank account. I can't sing. Or I'm terrible at public speaking. I'm awful at sports. As if there's no hope for you. So make sure you're sending the right message. You might even want to take on something new. It doesn't have to be uh, doesn't have to be anything stressful. But have your kids see you learning something new. Where maybe you're not as good when you start, but you're improving. And the word yet can be really helpful too. I don't know how to do this yet. I can't dribble the ball yet. I'm thinking about basketball right now because my daughter just made the basketball team and she will readily admit she's not one of the very strongest players on the team, but she's so excited every time she gets better, every time she accomplishes something. So I kind of have basketball on my brain at the moment. Number three, encourage your child not to always take the easy route. So a lot of times kids will default to things that that are easy for them rather than pushing themselves to try something new. So if they were going to sit down and do a little math worksheet, would they want to do questions that are easy and rote and they already have them memorized and they're good? Or would they want to tackle a problem that they haven't seen before that's going to require a little bit more effort? So you want to be encouraging them to do those things that will stretch them, stretch them a little bit farther, even if they don't get the right answer. Number four, remember that growth mindset isn't just academic. It applies to many areas of life. So athletic, musical, even social. You keep making mistakes on a guitar chord or you try to initiate with a friend and that didn't go well. Discuss the next step for improvement. And it doesn't have to be, you know, jumping way, way, way ahead to what you want the finished product to be at the very end. It's just here's where you are right now. What's going to get you that next step in your growth? And number five, try to discourage envy of peers, but talk to your child about what they can learn from others who appear more successful at something. So it's okay to think, oh, wow, she is so good at art, or he is just so great at times tables. And skills might come more easily to some. Absolutely. I know that as a parent and a teacher, but sometimes there's an unseen element of practice, persistence, hard work, those things. So maybe you could even find out what is that other kid doing? Are they drilling their their times tables every night? Are they taking an art class? Maybe you can try to to learn from something instead of just being envious of of what they're able to do. And hopefully some of those tips can apply uh, to your life as well. I see a lot of business people these days starting to talk about growth mindset. It seemed to previously be more in the education field, but I see, I follow a lot of women entrepreneurs on on, on Instagram and, and people who are running small businesses, and they're talking a lot about growth mindset now too. So it's becoming a lot more uh, widespread. So see if it can help you. If you are on social media, which I have an inkling you might be, you can find me on Facebook and Twitter at This Mom Loves. I'm on Instagram at Kate This Mom Loves. And of course, the blog is thismomloves.ca. I have a page on there for my TV segments. I have one for um, printed articles if you're interested in that. Also a contact page if you want to get a hold of me. And if you go to the podcasts page, you can find information about all of the episodes that have been so far. This one is episode 23. I am very pleased to welcome my special guest to the show today, Anne Douglas. Anne is a mom and also a veteran parenting author, and she's here to talk about her new book, Happy Parents, Happy Kids. Welcome, Anne. Oh, it's great to be with you, Kate. 
Congratulations on your book. I read it and I really enjoyed it. And I think what I love most is the whole supportive tone of this book. I mean, you've got research and expert advice and there are some things you're advising and not advising, but really it gives us permission to make mistakes, tells us not to feel guilty. We're allowed to do things our own way. It really, I think, does kind of achieve its goal of trying to make us happier. So well done. (laughs) I'm happy to hear that because I know when I interviewed parents prior to starting the book, they just really emphasized the the fact that you do not want to make parents feel more anxious or more guilty. So if you feel like I achieved that, then all is good. Good. So I want to jump right in with an interesting point that you make um, near the beginning of the book about helicopter parents and how they might not really exist. And I know as a teacher, there are certainly some parents out there who fit that mold of what we think of. But you say that actually these overbearing parents aren't quite the prevalent phenomenon that they've been made out to be. Can you talk about that? Absolutely. Well, I mean, I think that the reason we hear so much about helicopter parents is that it's like it makes wonderful media stories. I mean, how can you not click on the link when it's going to tell you about that over the top mom or dad who did that thing? So those kind of stories tend to catch fire and spread very quickly. But if we if we think about it, like when I think back to my own growing up years, there have always been parents who've quote unquote, hovered a little bit. I'm remembering one time when I was probably about nine years of age. um, One of my friends was about half an hour late getting home from school and her mom called all around the neighborhood in a panic saying she was convinced her daughter had been kidnapped. So, you know, that was an extreme reaction. And thankfully, the daughter was fine. But um, I think that the thing that bothers me the most about the helicopter parenting idea is that it sort of gets pitched as if it was the defining characteristic of an entire generation of parents. And I I don't think that's true. I actually researched this quite intensely when I was researching my book (laughs) and looked at media stories in Canada and the US and what they would ultimately come down to, they'd start off big like parents are doing this thing and then it would be a story about one parent or a couple of parents who did this thing. And, And the latest iteration of this has been the idea that parents are all kinds of parents are going to their children's job interviews and, and, and you know, instead of barging into the hiring process. And again, just mm-hmm. in here in Canada, I, I looked at a lot of those stories and they kind of pointed back to this one study done by the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, which talked about one or two of their members out of how many hundreds of thousands of members uh, raising this as a concern. So I think we need to take those stories with a grain of salt because otherwise what happens is Normal parents who are doing wonderful things, like really good parents, start second guessing their instinct to, to you know, connect with and, and take good care of their kids. I mean, recently I had a conversation with a parent whose child had just gone off to university and she was saying, like, I hope you don't think I'm a helicopter parent because I'm in regular contact. It's like, no, that's actually how it's supposed to be. Because think back to yes. when you were that age, right? You wanted to know somebody was still in your court. So, so that's my thing about helicopter parents. No, I think that that was an interesting point. I want to quote something in your book that really resonated with me. Um, I'm totally a productivity junkie. <laughs> and I love this uh, this part that you wrote. There are certain fundamental aspects of the experience of parenting that make goal culture uniquely appealing, like the fact that the job description for the position of parent is ambiguous and ever-changing, and the fact that real-time validation and positive feedback tend to be in chronically short supply. Because it's so hard to measure the impact you're having on your child right now and to feel confident that you are, in fact, doing this parenting thing right, it can be tempting to look to things you can measure, like the number of items you managed to scratch off your to-do list over the course of a day or the progress you made toward any number of parenting goals. 
I really love that. And really the only reason I brought it up is to thank you for, <laughs> for kind of putting it in black and white like that. And obviously I must not be the only one who sort of feels that way if it made it into the book. Yes. I, that, I come by that observation very honestly and through my own years of trying to figure this out. I mean, many years ago, I wrote a book called Sanity Savers and it was about juggling work and family. And now looking back on that, I think like it was just so wonderfully naive to think that there was this magical formula I could learn and master and apply to my life and suddenly feel in control when really, you know, there's so many moving parts when you're juggling work and family. I don't think we're ever going to feel like things are magically totally in balance. And so, you know, that yeah. idea that like you're doing it wrong, if you haven't got this all figured out, I think that's just us being really, really hard on ourselves. And, and like you said about the productivity thing, just because we can measure something doesn't mean we really necessarily should. Like I'm hoping nobody's going to bring out like a hug tracker that parents will feel obligated to record <laughs> numbers of hugs in a day and graph it and say, oh no, today was, you know, 50% the hugs of last weekend. I'm doing it wrong. So I better go hide my hug tracker. <laughs> No, I have never done anything like that. But it's so true, though, that sometimes I kind of turn to the, you know, business-like things that I can cross off the household to-dos when you really don't realize, well, no, that cuddle or that story or whatever, the investment you're making into the parenting is just as valuable, right, as all of those other to-dos. It totally is. So I have another thing I want to ask you about in terms of parents being distracted on our phones. And I kind of want to ask you, do you think there's any difference between this and then the typical ways that our parents were distracted when we were kids? So for example, I know when my brother and I were young, when my parents got home from work, they were certainly available if we wanted to tell them about our day or had anything that we wanted to share, but then they were newspaper readers. <laughs> so there was a point where they were reading four papers a night. And so they would get dinner on and then sit down in the living room and they would both be reading their papers. And we kind of knew to, you know, not disturb them when they were reading. Is that different than what we're doing now being on our smartphones? Do you think technology makes it different? I think in some ways it's good that kids don't think that we're at their beck and call every single second, but there are also times that you don't want to be distracted. So kind of, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that. Well, I was definitely one of those book and easy grabbing distance kind of parents when my kids were really young. And I remember thinking like, guys, just let me read two paragraphs of this book. And you know, then you'll have my attention again, but I need a mental vacation. So I think that parents have always sought sort of sources of distraction. But I think what's different now is the fact that Smartphones are designed to not just capture, but keep our attention for prolonged periods of time and to call us away. Like, uh, you know, I don't know of any book that, well, some books are pretty captivating, but I don't know that they can <laughs> sort of call you with a beep from across the room, at least no book I right. ha have in my house yet. Um, so I think <laughs> that is different. And I think that sometimes we don't recognize that smartphones can kind of fuel a little bit of an anxiety cycle. So maybe you're feeling like you need a break from parenthood because that's 100% of what parenting is like. Some days you just really need a break. So then you go to your smartphone, but instead of sort of like, you know, getting you calm and serene and stuff, it can sometimes rev you up and leave you feeling more anxious and more distracted. And that in turn causes you to seek more distraction. And, you know, it just goes kind of on and on. But I really think that um, I hate a lot of the really guilt-inducing messages that parents are being given these days about distracted parenting. I mean, I'm sure you saw that one quote that I had in the book from the U.S. psychologist who basically said that, you know, distracted parenting was ripping a hole in children's souls. And I do not want to be the person yes. who says that kind of thing. I think that's a little over the top. But at the same time, I think we can recognize that sometimes when we're distracted, 
we miss out on the really great stuff of parenting. And the really great stuff of parenting, like that cute little smile from your baby or whatever, that's the reward. If you're robbing yourself of the reward, you're making the other 99.9% of parenting on a bad day, uh, you know, so much harder for yourself. Oh, that's a good point. Um, You have a whole chapter in the book on how to boost your enjoyment of parenting. And I have to say, I've got two girls, they're 13 and almost 11. And actually for me, I'm finding this the most enjoyable phase so far. I love the independence. I love spending time with them as sort of their own human beings now. And you know, it's it's so much, it's much different than when they're depending on you totally. And you're just kind of looking after their needs. Now you're kind of keeping company together and and I'm loving it. But I know um, a lot of listeners might not necessarily be at a, a very enjoyable phase. So what are some of your tips for people to to get more enjoyment out of parenting? Well, one of them is what we were just talking about a moment ago, sort of just like really noticing and enjoying the good stuff. I mean, as human beings, we have this tendency to sort of like just gloss over the good stuff and focus on the negative. So I think like if you have an amazing day with your kids, at the end of the day, reflect on that a bit and savor that. Don't just let it be gone in a flash because you've logged on and you're paying your bills now or something. Just Really notice that and look forward to great times with your kids. I mean, if you're doing something this weekend, maybe start getting excited around Wednesday, thinking about how amazing that's going to be and, and you know, capture memories, but not in a way that totally prevents you from enjoying the actual experience, but maybe find a way to, to document it so you can look back on it in six months and, and laugh over those fun times together with your kids. So I, I think that's a big thing. And I think um, without being sort of like that icky person who's doing too much sort of gratitude stuff, because I think sometimes the gratitude things can get a little over the top. I think even just, you know, feeling grateful for the things that go well in a day, as opposed to always putting the spotlight on the stuff that is driving you crazy. And I think recognizing that parenting is not going to be 100% joy all of the time. I think some of the the enjoyment we miss from parenting comes from unrealistic expectations and pressure that we put on ourselves. I mean, if you feel like you're doing it wrong, if you're not feeling 100% blissed out all of the time, uh, that's a pretty high standard. And I don't know any parent who feels that way all the time. So I think just to realize, you know, Some days are tougher than others. You wake up with a headache, your child's in a whiny mood. Uh, You know, you're not going to feel totally blissed out on that day, but maybe tomorrow will be a little easier or just a little less awful. Now let's talk about screen time for kids. So I thought it was interesting. You note in the book that under two hours a day for older kids doesn't have a huge negative impact, but larger amounts, of course, you know, more detrimental, the more that they're on screens. And as a teacher, I always remind parents, of the importance of noting the quality of the screen time. Yes. So for example, my 13-year-old and her um, her cousin, who's around the same age, right now they're sharing a Google Doc and they are writing a book together. Aww. So my daughter will spend hours on this. I mean, they have 160 pages of this book written. Holy. But if you looked at her from the outside, you might think, oh, look at that teenager. She was on her laptop for hours today. What's she doing? You know, so I mean, it kind of depends what they're, what they're working on. I always say creating is better than consuming and you're making sure that they're on safe sites and all of that stuff. But what What other advice do you have for parents in terms of kids and screens? I think to help them to notice that as well, because, uh, you know, all of us have figured out that there are some activities online that leave you feeling better, like tapping into your creative spirit or, you know, doing any number of connecting type things with other people. And then there may be other things that leave you feeling more anxious or kind of bummed out or feeling like you're the only person who isn't having a wonderful life. So the best thing we can do for our kids is to get them to notice those feelings in themselves. 
And so maybe you might say, you know, I, I see you were just doing such and such on the computer. How are you feeling right now? And like, you know, without maybe being that obvious, that's a little bit too obvious. The phrasing, <laughs> you have to be more subtle as they get older, be right? Subtle, yeah. Yes. But then, you know, getting them to notice that maybe if when I'm on a particular social media platform with a particular group of friends, um, that is like, it's just like being in the same room and having a group hug. But maybe on a different platform in a different context with different people, I feel like it's a big competition and that I'm one of the losers, like, you know, just noticing those feelings, and then challenging the kids like, well, what do you want to do differently so that they can come to their own solutions? Because I think where we sometimes get into trouble as the adults in the room is if we want to micromanage all of the computer usage in a way that doesn't allow the the kids to learn how to self-reflect and to make their own choices because kids are smart. They will drive the activity underground. They'll find another way to do it. Mm -hmm. And so you want them to learn how to put the brakes on and and recognize they're going to make mistakes. I, I don't know about you, but there are days when I get sucked into a social media vortex and five hours later, I think, gosh, I'm feeling kind of icky right now. Oh, yeah, maybe it's that I've been sitting on a couch for five hours staring at a screen that could do it. And so Mm -hmm. if I can keep making that mistake, and I'm not a teenager anymore, uh, you know, think about somebody who's learning this for the first time. For sure. Um, You also write that self-care is so important for parents. And of course, a lot of people, when they hear that, they have this idea of, you know, a big expensive weekend at the spa, and that's just impossible. And how can I take care of myself? But you mentioned that there are some more inexpensive and more attainable ways we can show ourselves some self-care. So what are some of your suggestions? I think it's going to vary according to the individual because we all have our own repertoire of things that make us feel really great. Like I often think of my cousin Karen and her idea of bliss is sitting and cross stitching for a couple of hours. And you know, if you've ever done cross stitch, like you could spend an entire weekend and end up with like a two inch square of stuff. But she says (laughs) she just loses herself in the environment. Whereas to me, I would get a knot in the thread, I would be frustrated beyond belief. To me, it's losing myself in a book or having a conversation with a friend or going for a walk or better yet, going for a walk while having a conversation with a friend. I haven't figured out how to work the reading part in, but I guess we could share two earbuds and listen to an audiobook, but that seems like I'd lose the social thing. So so just <laughs> figure out what's going to work for you. And it really, it can be in five minute blocks. I was at a um, an early childhood education retreat on the weekend, and they um, did a meditation exercise. And after we were finished, the person who led it said, how long do you think that lasted? And people are like 10 minutes, 20 minutes, it was three minutes. But just because we were really able to sort of, you know, get out of our own heads, it felt like a lengthy vacation. So sure, you may not have 10 minutes, but maybe you have three. Yeah. Oh, that's not interesting. You write about keeping your relationship strong with your partner after kids. What are some of the typical things that couples tend to fight about after becoming parents? And then what are tips for keeping relationships on track after kids? Yes. Well, a big one is parenting. I mean, suddenly you have a new thing to argue about that you never had in the past. And Uh, You know, it could be that the fact that we all come from our own backgrounds with our own ideas about what being a parent is all about and having to reconcile that. Maybe the other person in the relationship um, has very different ideas about what children need or, or, you know, a different understanding of child development than what you have. And you have to work through some of those things together. And then, of course, there's the fact that having children takes time and costs money. So time battles, honestly, Uh, I think that so many of the arguments that people have 
are over really frustrating things like, uh, you know, women still carry the brunt of the emotional labor in relationships. So a lot of the times us thinking like, why am I the one who has to remember X, Y, Z, you know, like, can't somebody else in this family carry a little bit of this load? And, uh, you know, sometimes you see your, your, your chore lists going in like traditionally, you know, male, female patterns, so you're going, but wait, I thought we were doing things differently in this generation. How come I'm washing dishes and, and you're taking out the garbage like that seems too stereotyped. So a lot of people will have those kind of issues. And then of course, the money crunch where having kids does cost a lot of money that can lead to money worries, it can lead to fewer resources. So if you're somebody who has had the luxury of being able to afford a lot of, you know, nice clothing or trips or anything like that, the economics of having a kid can can turn that on its head. And, you know, you love your kids, but there are times when you think, I just would really like to have a few more resources left for me. <laughs> and then how can couples stay on track with uh, with these things that come up? I think you really need to, first of all, have a sense of humor and be able to, you know, maybe do funny looks at before and after after kids as opposed to sobbing together um, having you know that kind of conversation about it I also think remembering that the other person is adjusting to a lot of changes I mean just having being in a relationship and having a kid requires so much personal growth and we don't always do it at exactly the same rate or go through the exact same process so looking for opportunities to talk through what you're thinking and feeling and to give the other person the benefit of the doubt as much as possible. There are times when um, we lose sight of the fact that, uh, let's say that your partner forgot to take out the garbage and it was his or her turn this morning. Um, if it's in our own heads and we were the one who forgot, we'll say things like, well, yeah, I was busy and, you know, of course I forgot. It's no big deal. But if it's the other person, you can think, oh, you know, they're so irresponsible or whatever. And you start sort of imposing motives or intentions that are not even remotely linked to reality for that person, because we don't have the luxury of seeing inside their head and knowing what worries they were carrying as they walked out the door. So I think, give the other person the benefit of the doubt, and look for ways to broach difficult su subjects in a way that um, is done in a spirit of kindness, and we're in this together. And, you know, and I say this as somebody who's a veteran of family counseling, marriage counseling, personal counseling, all the counselings. And I've, I've had to learn a lot of this stuff through many years of struggle. But when you find that connection with other people in your life, whether it's your partner or supportive friends or something, I think life is too hard to do it on your own. So if you have some kind of support system in the background, it makes it so much easier. And I say someone because some relationships you know, they, they don't deserve to be saved. They can be, you know, really damaging to the individuals involved. But if that's the case, you need to have your own village, your, your, your people that you connect with. Uh, single parents that I interviewed for my book said this is critical. And one mom in particular told me how life changing it was for her to discover that she could turn to another single mom for help with after school pickup or any number of things. And then she felt like she could heave a huge sigh of relief and know that she didn't have to shoulder all the responsibilities on her own. 
Well, you've led perfectly into my next question because one of the last things you talk about in the book is that idea of parents needing a village and that it's possible to find support online as well, but there are upsides and downsides to the whole online thing. And I like you use the phrase illusion of connection in there too. So can you discuss that a bit, sort of the the pros and cons of the online support? Sure. I think the illusion of connection thing is a really big thing. And I don't think we talk a lot about it. Like there have been some times in the past few years when either people in my life didn't know what was really going on with me or I didn't know what was going on with theirs. A couple of weeks ago, for example, I discovered by reading somebody's Instagram post, they, they talked about how um, their husband would, would have been so proud of them if he was here to see this. And I read that and I had this awful feeling like, oh no, something major has happened that I'm not aware of. And I did a bit more digging because, you know, we do live a lot of our lives online. And I was able to find out that her husband had passed away and I didn't know. And yet I'm connected to this person on two, if not three, social media platforms. So while there's that sort of, you know, spiraling by of stories on a day-to-day basis, I think sometimes we think we know what's going on with other people when we don't really see the whole picture. And so, and that left me feeling really sad and really guilty So I I think that happens a lot. And I think we need to sort of recognize that there are limits to what we know about our online friends. I think also there's the, uh, the thing we all know, we all know that a lot of times people are sharing the best highlights of their life and, and that, you know, it's not the whole picture. And we can sometimes feel like we're having less interesting or less fulfilling, exciting lives in comparison. Um, So I think that there's, there's a lot of things that can be on the downside. But on the upside, if you are dealing with a particular challenge in your family, maybe one of your children has a mental health condition, maybe you have a health condition, you can find your people online, you can find, you know, another family that's tried a particular treatment method or medication or something. And that is the best feeling in the world. So there's so many wonderful things about online support. But I think where where we get like the magic happening is when you can take some of those online relationships and carry them over into the online world so that maybe someday that person who offered you amazing online support, you actually get to sit face to face for a cup of coffee. And Anne, I always end my interviews by asking my guests if they have a, a This Mom Loves, some sort of favorite thing to recommend to listeners. Is there anything you think listeners might appreciate? I totally love this book by Kristen Neff, and it's called Self-Compassion. And I love this book so much that I have literally purchased copies for all my sisters and a number of other relatives over the years, and nobody has been disappointed in the book because the, the purpose of the book is simple. It's to teach you how to treat yourself with greater kindness and less criticism so that that way that inner voice in your head is saying kind things and not harsh and judgmental things. And reading that book was like transformative for me when I was on my own sort of health transformation journey of a couple of years ago. Instead of looking in the mirror and saying mean things to myself, I could say kind and encouraging things like what I would say to a friend. So that's what as soon as you said to me, you know, recommend something, that is the thing I would recommend to other people. Perfect. Well, Happy Parents, Happy Kids by Anne Douglas is available now. I will have a link in the show notes as well as a link to Anne's site and social media accounts. And you can find everything at thismumloves.ca slash podcasts. This is episode 23. Thank you so much for being here today, Anne. Thank you, Kate. It was a pleasure. 
And that's a wrap for this episode of This Mom Loves. Thank you again to my special guest, Dan Douglas. Thank you to my editor, Lucas Wojcicki. And thank you to all of you who are listening right now. If you enjoy This Mom Loves, it would be fantastic if you could rate or review it wherever you listen or just share with a friend. Pass the, pass the message around. It really helps when you uh, spread the word so others can find This Mom Loves the podcast as well. Until next time, have a great week. 